But here we are, Revelation chapter 8. Jesus, in the early part of the book of Revelation, is seen in a vision by John receiving this scroll from the hand of God that is like him taking this role as executor over human history. He's going to lead and guide the events of human history on up to the culmination of the kingdom of God and the final judgment of the world. That's been depicted in the book of Revelation up to this point. And last week, we looked at the seven seals that Jesus broke as he opened up that scroll. And as we saw the, uh, these metaphors for the events that are going to play out, it's sort of like Jesus received this script of how human history is going to play out. And he's taken us through scene one and scene two. It wasn't linear like that, but you get the picture of the role that he's taken up. Now, those same events like that were depicted in those metaphors of the seals being broken open are going to be talked about again through these seven trumpet blasts, but there's going to be a different emphasis, which complements, in a lot of ways, the vision that uh, John received last week through the seals. Sort of like in the Gospels, there's four different Gospels. They tell the same story of the life and ministry of Jesus, but they tell it from four different dimensions that helps give you a fuller picture. It's like when you're sitting in the barber chair and they spin you around, they show you the backside of your head. Like, uh, you know, you're looking this way and you're seeing, you know, the haircut take place, but then they show you it from another dimension. They show you another angle. So we're going to get spin, spun right here. I mean, uh, you're going to feel it when I'm on the other side of reading this passage of the seven trumpets of judgment. And there's two additional visions given. Like last week with the seals, we paused. We had a visionary aside, another image of the 144,000 that are sealed. And then we went back to the seals. Not to confuse that too much, but it was. Uh, This, we've got the seven trumpet blasts, but we have this visionary aside of the two witnesses. And and John's recommissioning as a prophet. I'm going to be reading all of it this morning. I'll need the glasses. Chapter 8. Verse 6, the verses will also be on the screens. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night." As I watched, this is John, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. 
The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. This is the aside. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he spoke, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, 
The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. That's the seven trumpets depicted here in the book of Revelation with those two visionary asides. Just like the seals of last week, there is a bit of organization to these uh, trumpet blasts with the four sort of separated from the final three, which are depicted as these woes that are even more intense. In these first four, we have one, the first trumpet, an image of fiery hail, which burns up the land. In the second one, we have a mountain ablaze, it's thrown into the sea, which turns the sea to blood and affects the fish and ships. Not the fish and chips. The fish and ships, although fish and chips would also be included in this as well. Three, we have the image of a star, possibly an angelic being with the name of wormwood who affects the freshwater sources. Wormwood would be a bitter additive in the water. This was seen in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was told to add wormwood to water as sort of this metaphor, this picture of God's judgment upon his people. And four, the fourth trumpet blast, the sun and moon and stars are struck. So there's increasing darkness during the day and at night. Now, need I remind you that these are metaphors to explain truth, spiritual truths. So like if I gave you an assignment and I said, I want you to make a short film, it's going to be 10 minutes long, and I want you to explain to me the entire story of humankind. You know, you couldn't rifle through the events, like one second for every event. You'd have to depict it in these broader strokes, in these metaphors, and that is what we see here, depicted in the period between Jesus' resurrection and His second coming, the time in which we now live. There are natural disasters that affect food, commerce, and water sources, and the light of the moon and the sun might be some celestial signs that appear in the sky, but it also, again, might be metaphors for a psychological impact that happens in the world as there is spiritual darkness that befalls a portion of the earth. Now, why, again, does God inflict the earth with these plagues? If you want to know more, go back to last week. I talk about that, the mystery of it, God's purpose in the midst of it. 
But there seems to be something unique about these plagues and the trumpet blasts that enliven us to God's purposes because these first four, in fact, the first five trumpet blasts correspond very closely to five of the ten plagues that God brought on the nation of Egypt in the book of Exodus. It's there in the book of Exodus that God's people are oppressed. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're crying out for God to save them. And God responds by sending Moses. And Moses executes these ten plagues against Egypt with this cry of God and of Moses, hey, let God's people go. Free them from this slavery and oppression. But every time, you know, these plagues come down on Egypt, Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God so he doesn't let him go until the plagues are complete. And everybody goes, why in the world did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why didn't he just let him, let him go? It's because every single one of those plagues represents God's victory over another Egyptian false god. So, for instance, there's the god Happy. He's not happy. He's the god of the Nile. And God turns the Nile blood red. So he shows, look, Happy's got no power. I got the power. You know, the God of the sun, what's the God of the sun in Egypt? We actually know this one, it's Ra. And God turns it dark because he shows his power over the God of the sun, the God Ra. So also, these plagues are like footnoting that. They're, you know, they're, they're captioning, you know, the work that God is doing. He's showing his power over the very world that the world is worshiping, the very objects of the world's worship. Like if I were to put these plagues into a parable, it'd be like, you're living your life and you decide, man, I want a Tesla. I've got to have a Tesla. And so you're like, I'm going to spend all my disposable income on getting a Tesla like some of you have done. And you're going like, I'll give anything to get it and then you buy it. And you're like, this is amazing. It's the most incredible piece of engineering. I have everything I need. And then it autopilots you into oncoming traffic. It's not a wonderful story. I didn't tell you it was a wonderful story. But it's a parable for how these plagues work out, you know? And I, and I pray that would never happen to any of you that own a Tesla here. And you're saying, well, it never would because my statistics say I'm actually safer than you are, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. But the point is, the very thing that you find significance in and meaning in, the thing that you're holding in highest value is the very thing that ultimately works against you and brings you judgment. Now, if that wasn't bad enough... The transition to the fifth trumpet indicates there's going to be some ratcheting up of the volume of the afflictions for the final three, and it begins with this eagle. Often, the eagle is a metaphor in the Old Testament for an invading army. They're going to sweep over the nation like an eagle would sweep over the nation, and he declares these three successive woes that are going to accompany this trumpet blast. And with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, there's this angelic being with the name Apollyon, you know, or destroyer. It's possibly even Satan himself who's given authority by Jesus, this key to the abyss to unleash a demonic horde of locusts upon unbelieving humanity. Now, I don't know about you. There's a lot of terrifying aspects to these locusts, but nothing is more frightening to me in the description than the fact that they had women's hair. <laughs> you know, I mean, they got the teeth of lions, they got the scorpion's tails, they got the armor on, right? But crowns on their head, human face, but just the hair thing adds a lot to it for me. Nothing wrong with women's hair. Okay, I'm just saying when you put the whole picture together, these are freakish creatures directed not to destroy fields as locusts would, but to harm and yet not kill anyone who does not have the seal of God on their forehead, as we talked about last week. That means anyone who does not have faith in Jesus, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit. They're going to attack everybody but God's people. 
And the torment they inflict, depicted through their teeth and scorpion tails, appears to produce primarily a psychological impact in the agony and longing for death that those afflicted express. Chapter 9, verse 6, during those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. In this judgment, I personally think we're seeing and experiencing the state of hopelessness that befalls a portion of humanity. Life is painful, and these people have nothing to hope in. Their only hope is that it will all end. How dark of a place to be in that you say, well, my only hope, the only thing I'm looking forward to is everything ending, but then they don't know what comes after, or they're afraid of what comes after, so they can't end it. So they're caught in this endless catch-22 NASCAR loop of suffering that believers are kept safe from, both the NASCAR and the loop of suffering, you know, because spiritually, we have the seal of God on our foreheads. What that means is we have a hope that endures in all circumstances. No matter how bad life gets and the experience of the world gets, we always have a kingdom and a resurrection that we are looking forward to. The rest of the world doesn't have it. They're afflicted. Then we have the sixth trumpet. The second woe, where a voice comes from the golden altar with four horns in God's throne room, four standing for completeness, and this picture of a horn standing for power. It's always power in the Bible. Recall the altar is where the believers were crying out for justice in the seal judgment. So we're linking these two things together. They're overlapping these pictures of judgment from the lesson last week and this week. Now the voice that calls out, Presumably it's Jesus or a creature from the altar. It gives the command to release the four angelic beings who are bound at the Euphrates. Now, is this a localizing of this disaster to the Middle East region? Like, okay, if this refers to stuff past, is this like something in the past that the Euphrates happened? Or if these are events future, like some people think, totally future, then is there something that's going to happen in the Middle East at the Euphrates that's going to take place? Look, we have to understand, this is a vision. These are impressions. A lot of times in Israel's history, invading armies, evil invading armies, came from the northeast border of the Promised Land. That's at the Euphrates. That's where Babylon came from, which is also the name that they used for Rome in the ancient world, right? It's the evil empire. So this envisions that the godless world living in its immorality is going to have a defeating enemy, a defeating force that's going to come in from beyond its borders. Now often the image of the locusts in the fifth trumpet and the image of these horses that are released in the sixth trumpet, a lot of times today they're likened to the implements of modern warfare. You know, like their wings are roaring like helicopter blades. And so John is there and he's just a guy from the first century and he's going, what is all this stuff? And so he puts it in words, you know, that kind of depict modern warfare. Some people would link it to, you know, things that you know, happened in the 15th century and the implements of war then. You know, we can all play that game. I can play that game. I can say that the locusts that unleash this hopelessness on humankind, that's smartphones. And the four angelic beings that are, you know, unleashed on the world, that is Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. Sent to torture everyone, all of you, right? Yeah, I mean, there's all these various connections that we can make, but I think the point here is directing the reader's attention to the power of the horses being in their mouths and in their tails that were like serpents. That's where our attention is supposed to focus. Now, later in Revelation chapter 13, 
the power the dragon gives to the beast, which we're going to get into in a future teaching. I know you're excited. The power the dragon gives to the beast is in his mouth to speak arrogant words and blasphemies against God, his name, and his people. And when we think of the tail like a serpent, a serpent is a picture of the devil himself, and it's what Jesus called the Pharisees. He said, you are a brood of vipers because of their false teaching. So in my mind, this could very well be literal and or spiritual death that results from false teaching and evil ideologies that are spread abroad in the world, just like we see today. Now, whatever your view are of these judgments, whether you think they are more literal, referring to events that have already happened or are literally going to happen along these lines, or you think they're more symbolic, as I'm sharing with you, whether you think they are taking place now, as I think these trumpet judgments have been unleashed and we're in the midst of them, or you think they're taking place future. I think the most stunning and revealing statement in this section of Revelation occurs for all of us in chapter 9, verse 20, when it says that those who did not die in these plagues still did not change. They did not repent. Like a smoker whose lung cancer metastasizes and he keeps on smoking. No regard for himself, no sanctity in his life, just hardness of heart. The people didn't stop their practices that God hates. A lot of unclear things in the book of Revelation, but when it gets down to brass tacks, the clear stuff is clear. And this is clearly what God hates. We can all get this message. He hates it when people worship created things rather than the creator. Material things of this world rather than the one that they emerged from, right? And he hates these sins. He hates sexual immorality. He hates theft. You know, he hates this killing. He hates the magic arts. You think, oh, magic arts, that doesn't happen today. The word for this in the Greek is pharmakon, from which we get the word pharmacy. They are those who with drugs cast a spell. So the key is, it doesn't matter what disasters come upon these that are engaging in the things that God hates, how much they are affected by the things that they worship, you know, the, these things warring back against them, the things that they worship, or how powerless those things that they worship and serve are to help them cope with all these disasters, they do not give them up. It's a cautionary and tragic tale of the world that continues to play out to this very day. Now we pause for a few moments from the trumpets in chapter 10 for a moment. You breathe in a deep sigh of relief. And here is where the first visionary aside is introduced, as we saw in our last study. In fact, there's two, as I said. The first is John receiving the little scroll from this mighty angel's hand. And from the way the angel is described, this might just be a mighty angel. It might be Jesus himself, given the way his feet are, given the way the rainbow is above his head. This is descriptions that are attributed to God and to Jesus early in Revelation. But whoever he is, he speaks yet another sevenfold revelation of the thunders that John is instructed not to write. And I know what you're saying, yes, thank you, because I can barely keep up with the seals. I can barely keep up with the trumpets. I don't need to know about the thunders, right? You know, you're going, whoo, all right, enough of this already. But it's an interesting and curious inclusion in the book of Revelation. Why in the world would there be seven thunders, but you don't write it down? Well, I think this is an infusion of humility for the reader. That though we'd study the book of Revelation, we would never think that we would know it all. Because there are things that have been intentionally left out. <laughs> We're not meant to know it all. We're meant to know as much as God wants to convey to us. 
as much as he knows we need to know. And that corresponds with the description of this little scroll, which appears to be an abridged version of the scroll in God's hand Jesus took from the hand of God in Revelation 5. I believe this little scroll is the portion that John is being told to write through the message of Revelation. It's not the whole thing that Jesus knows. It's a portion of the scroll. It's a portion of the things that we need to know captured in the book of Revelation. Now, the scroll's message, like the book of Revelation, is a message from God to the whole world as seen through these different plagues uh, to the whole world, to unbelievers as well as believers. And when he gets it, he's instructed to eat it, just as Ezekiel was instructed, a prophet of the Old Testament, to consume a scroll. And like Ezekiel, when he eats it, it's sweet to the taste. But unlike Ezekiel, when he goes to digest it, it turns his stomach bitter. It turns his, his stomach sour. You know, such is the Word of God at times for us. You know, it's like a Castaneda's burrito. You know, or, or for you commoners, a Del Taco burrito. For you villains, a Taco Bell burrito. I'm actually, I don't, I don't choose. I, I have them all. But that's the Word of God. It, it's true. It's good. It's right. It tastes sweet. But its implications sometimes are not things that we relish in. You know, he's got this true revelation, great revelation. It's, it's beautiful. It's from God. But when you see people who are headed toward disaster continue heading in that direction, it's not a good thing. There's a bitterness to the impact of the message. When people have an opportunity to move away from the path of destruction and yet choose to continue down that path of destruction... And it doesn't go well. But what else is there to do? Should God leave evil unjudged, eliminate right and wrong as if that were even possible? No, the message of God is sweet. It's right. It's just. It's good. Yet the result is sometimes bitter. And all that bitter sweetness of God's judgment is depicted in the second visionary aside regarding the two witnesses. In this vision, John is instructed to measure the temple as in Ezekiel chapter 40 all the way up to 48. How many of you guys are interested in Ezekiel 40? It's not everybody's favorite Bible passage. In fact, if you go through the Bible in a year, this is the area where it's no man's land. This is where the Bible reading in a year plan kind of goes, it's a year and a half, I guess. Because literally Ezekiel is there given a measuring rod and he's measuring this, he's measuring that, he's measuring that, chapter after chapter after chapter. And it's this picture of the heavenly temple, of the heavenly kingdom of God. So John is given a measuring rod, just like in the book of Ezekiel, but he's told only to measure a portion of the temple. What that indicates is that Ezekiel's vision is in partial fulfillment. We're halfway to heaven. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like through Jesus' ministry and the time that we're living in now, we've received the Holy Spirit abroad upon the earth. We're, we're living in God's presence, but heaven hasn't come in its fullness. So we're in this in-between place where the church is still vulnerable to attack by the rest of the world, pictured in the Gentiles who are waging war against them. We're the true Israel, and the Gentiles are still yet coming against us. The two witnesses, or two olive trees, or two lampstands refer to God's people, to the church, as they did in the early part of the book of Revelation, as it gives its testimony through the ages regarding Jesus. Why are there two witnesses? In the Old Testament, if you had a court case, you needed two witnesses for the testimony to be valid. So the church, the lamp stands, is standing there giving testimony, and it's a valid testimony against the world and for Jesus. They minister for 42 months. This could be the approximate time of Jesus's earthly ministry. So much of the two witnesses' journey is right there in the story of Jesus. They're like lockstep with each other. 
It also could be a number corresponding with the 42 encampments of the Israelites as they move through the wilderness to the promised land, just as we are doing right now in our own lives. If anyone harms them, they speak with fire, like Jeremiah spoke with a message of fire that would consume his audience. And like Moses, they have at their disposal the power of the plagues described in the trumpet blast. Now, when their testimony has concluded, their job is finished. Like Jesus says elsewhere, I, I cited it last week, when the whole world, this gospel's gone to the whole world, like he said last week in the book of Revelation, when the full number have died in my name, the beast from the abyss to appear later will be given the power to attack them and their bodies will be on display for the whole world in the great city of both sin and oppression, the city where the Lord himself was crucified. Now, how would the whole world view the bodies of these two witnesses from this one city location? Is that because of the internet and live streaming and globalism and it's finally our day? You know, it, look, it's a metaphor. It's an image again. It, it doesn't have to mean that. What I think is more likely is that there's a time that's coming and it has come and it is coming again when the world will have so marginalized and oppressed the church that it will look as if the church and its testimony is utterly defeated on the global stage. And it'll gloat about it. And it'll celebrate because their conscience that is seared by the testimony of the church is no longer tormenting them. And then just like Jesus, three days later there's resurrection. And this is to come all from the unbelieving world before the seventh and final trumpet blasts. Now, as in the fall of Jericho, captured in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, the seventh trumpet blast, the city walls came down. Now the world's walls are coming down, and the song of heaven rings out, declaring the eternal reign of Jesus has arrived alongside the renewal of the world. The time for judging the dead and for rewarding God's faithful has arrived, and Ezekiel's vision is fulfilled, because there's the heavenly temple and the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God upon it, right there in full display with an earthquake, hail of fire, and peals of thunder. It's the end and the beginning. Now, what do we walk away with from these substantial chapters, the visions, the trumpets, so much there, but I want to distill this down into some things that we can really be left with on the other side of this study. Number one, I want to share with you this. I'm impressed this way. Again, maybe you don't have the same impression studying through the book of Revelation as you read and discern John's impressions from God. This is what I'm left with, and I think these are universal for us no matter how you interpret these events. Number one, one thing that we see in these chapters is that idolatry is die hard. Idolatry is die hard. If you don't know what idolatry is, an idol is anything we place above God in terms of value. And there's something about idolatry in human beings that is fanatical. There's something about it when it happens, when it, when it clings onto us and we place something in the seat of higher value above God, we become single-minded about that thing and so passionate and fanatical. It's like religion. And that makes sense because idolatry is a religion. It's a false religion. And human beings, we are religious beings. When we don't worship our creator, we find something else to put in that place. We find something else to give ultimate value to, to define our significance from, to give ourselves a purpose and a narrative and a story. And Revelation shows we will hold to it even when we find those idols to be powerless and even when they afflict us and turn against us. 
Like, you'll find plenty of people today. They have different idols. I just read this article this last week, an interview from Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, what do you think about God? Because it's like, oh, he's in movies. He must know something. You know, it's just like, here's a guy. You know, people watch act. He must know about God. Well, Harrison Ford talking about God. He says, you know, through my experiences in life, I found that the natural world is God. And there's a lot of people who feel exactly that same way. That's not like shocking. Oh, what? Harrison Ford? No, that's, that's a lot of people who feel that way. And all the fanaticism and all the passion and all the energy goes into preserving the world. If, if the natural world is God, God hates you. Because the natural world has all kinds of disasters happening in it all the time. And, and so fanatics who make the world an idol will say, well, the reason it is attacking us is because we've done it wrong. We need to worship it. And if we just worshiped it sufficiently, it would do us right. You know, and I, and I get it. Look, I like clean water. I like clean air. I like trees. I like animals. If you add all that up and you call me an environmentalist, I will happily take the label. But no matter how much we care for the earth, just think about it. The sun is middle-aged. It's going through a midlife crisis. We know one day its heat will consume everything on earth, no matter what we do. You know, but yet we keep making this pursuit the ultimate pursuit that all our meaning and significance is derived from, even though it comes to nothing. And atheists who are brilliant will say, okay, well, yeah, I know that's going to happen, so we've got to, like, find a way to chart out the stars and go have a cockroach-like existence on a distant, uninhabitable planet. That sounds great, everyone, right? Are you on board? You'll take the flight, right? And, and they know through their calculations that even if we got there and lived for a while, all the lights in the universe eventually will go out. What is it for? What is, what is driving us? You know, on a, on a smaller level, on just an everyday level, I mean, there's people who hold in the highest significance their health, their fitness, their image. And they work so hard from day to night to feel good about their physical image and stay fit and eat just right, even knowing that one day it's a diminishing return and your body will give out. But that's your main thing. That's your significance. That's your life. That's your purpose. One day it's coming to an end. People hoarding wealth. People getting more money than they could possibly spend in 10 lifetimes. What are they going to do with it? And it's the main thing. It's the thing they derive their substance and their being from. It's idolatry and it comes to nothing. I want you to hear this tweet from Kevin O'Leary. He's of Shark Tank fame. He's rich, so you should listen to him. He says this in his tweet this last week. You may lose your wife. You may lose your dog. Your mother may hate you. None of those things matter. What matters is that you achieve success and become free. Then you can do whatever you like. The 1% get a voice. This is success in America. It sounds strangely like the call of Jesus and discipleship. You're going to give up everything to gain success, and then you'll have everything you ever wanted. It is a delusion. The depth of depravity of idolatry, even when people know it's wastefulness in their hearts, they take everything they have, they place the bet on a table with 0% odds, and they wait to lose it all. How could we be so dumb and put this guy on TV and follow that ideology? Psalm 115 gives us the answer. It says, you worship and you become what you worship. 
If you worship idols and you worship material things that can't see and can't hear and can't walk and can't do anything, you'll become as deaf and dumb as the things that you worship. It will delude you. It will seize your heart. So my question, and for myself as much as anyone here, are there any idols in your life? I don't want to be deluded. I don't want anything to cling to that place that is only for God. These created things that don't have the place of the Creator, that emerge from the Creator. You know, I don't want anything that's going to be diehard and fanatical in my heart that I'm holding on to that dies with me. Are there idols in your life? Because idolatry is diehard. Number two, this is another thing I walk away with an impression from Revelation in this study. The Word of God is, at times, bittersweet. You know, we can love the Word. It's right, it's good, it's true, but that doesn't mean it always settles easily. I think there's this false belief that I have to agree with everything in the Bible naturally. I have to like it. And if I don't like everything in the Bible naturally, then it must mean it's not true. Well, when you, if you were to like everything in it, that is when it is false. If I was to come up here and just weave together this story of religious escapism that just makes you feel better about your existence, that denies all of reality around you, then that is when you should be afraid because I told you what your itching ears want to hear and now I finally get my spot on Oprah because now the world will finally listen to me. You know, cupcakes with sugar frosting filled with chocolate chips and gummy worms, is that what life is? Is that what human beings have wrought for themselves in society? Is Kevin O'Leary speaking cupcakes with frosting and gummy bears and chocolate chips? Is that reality? That's not true. That's not reality. So God's word is true. It's sweet to the taste, but sometimes the effect is bitterness. And like the prophet Jeremiah, he wept when he saw the outcome. Like Jesus, he was bitter. He was in pain when he saw people refuse the free offer of life. But let me finish with something sweet. Another impression I get from the book of Revelation as a whole, and certainly this passage, this sweet truth from the Bible, God retains ultimate power over Satan now. That is so clear from beginning to end in this reading. God retains ultimate power over Satan now. Now, I don't know how you want to translate this into your view and understanding of spiritual warfare, but there are a lot of supposed charismatics, people who say, I am very spiritual, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, more than other people are filled with the Holy Spirit, who they sort of picture and envision this spiritual battle between God and Satan is like this arm wrestling match between equals. And like, who's going to win it out this time? Is it God or is it Satan? And that couldn't be further from what we see in the book of Revelation. It's a gripping narrative for re-deliverance ministry. Like, if you want to be delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered endlessly, it works with that sort of ministry, but it doesn't fit with the book of Revelation. Revelation makes no bones about it. God rules. Satan has a leash as long as God gives him, and only for a short time. And we are protected spiritually with a seal. Even the afflictions the church experiences through the prophetic ministry of the two witnesses is ordained by God so that it can liken itself and align itself with the very same ministry of Jesus. The Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? And the Bible means it. So that no matter what happens into the future, you don't need to fear the world. You don't need to fear the future. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear Satan. Only revere God who's placed his seal upon you as believers. Now, if you don't have that seal upon your forehead through faith in Jesus, fear everything, but trade those fears for the reverence of God, and you can eliminate those fears forever through faith in Jesus.
Now, I want to invite up the, the band this morning and enter into a time of prayer. And I realize we're already five minutes over because I was not going to be ruled by the clock today, even as I'm going to respect your time and your day. If you've got to go, if you've got to get your kids, if you've got things that have to be done, you know, I, I always release you to that. If anything, we'll leave. We'll leave by the time like we used to end. For 10 years, it used to be an hour and a half, guys. So I think, you know, a couple weeks of this is going to be okay, especially if we can hear and understand and discern these powerful truths communicated to us through the book of Revelation. So if you have the ability to stay, let's stay. Let's let the Lord read our hearts even as we've read His Word. So would you pray with me right now this morning? Heavenly Father, I know there are people coming from all different walks of life in here this morning. There's so many different generations represented, so many different trials and challenges that people are facing, so many temptations that exist around us in this country, in this county, Orange County. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up in this place, that you would be given your rightful place in our hearts, in this fellowship, above all other things. We don't want to worship created things. We want to worship the creator of the universe. Everything that is created is temporary. It's all coming to an end. Every lie that creates meaning and purpose around created things in themselves, it's just that. It's a lie. It's coming to nothing. Make the blinders fall off those who are seated here this morning. That we would see reality. You know, the successful people in the world, they throw up a tweet like that with all this falsehood and the world doesn't even hesitate. It follows. It gives up its family. It gives up its well-being for this false vision of success that is ultimately in the end nothing at all. So who can be free? Freedom. What is freedom? When you've walked away from the will and the plan of God, when you've walked away from eternity, Lord, we want to lift you up. We want to place you where you deserve, worthy of all worship. We want to find our success and our meaning, our significance from you. And then everything else will find its proper order. Everything else will find its place. Lord, your word, it's bittersweet. It's so sweet. It's so true. It's so good. But yet sometimes it, it sits with us and we think, man, there's things in my life that are sour when I compare it to your word. There's, there's realities that are going to happen around me that are just, they're regrettable. They're painful. But yet, Lord, your word is still true. It is still sweet. It is still to us life. It's the only way. It's the only truth. It's the only life. And Lord, by your word, by your truth, we're given this freedom, this, this strength. We have the seal of your Holy Spirit upon us. So we have this state where we have no fear, even over Satan himself. There is no fear. So Lord, strengthen your church. As we honor you above all else, would you remind us that no matter what comes, no matter what time in history we're living in, no matter what challenges come against us, there's nothing that you don't have authority over. And you're able to keep us safe. And you're able to keep us for the day of our reward, for the day of that judgment that you're bringing, that victory that you're bringing. Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not have that confidence, who does not have that seal, your seal upon their forehead, upon their heart, upon their life, would they place their faith in your son Jesus this morning? Would they be filled with your Holy Spirit? And would they encounter a transformation of their heart and mind and soul that they never thought possible because they're clinging to eternal things, not the things of this world? 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.